you know, it was those clients that had such great difficulty in the, in their ability to regulate themselves that, you know, were going from therapist to therapist or came to me after seeing many other therapists. And I felt like I have to learn something new to help them so that they can learn how to self-regulate. The NeuroFeed Podcast. How is clinical neurofeedback transforming lives? We talk with therapists, researchers, and home users from the intersection of neuroscience and therapy. These interviews tell stories of discovery, empowerment, and learning to thrive. Our guests today are Mary Sotke and Chris Wheeler-Doe. Mary is a psychologist who has focused her practice on working with clients who have experienced developmental trauma. The nature of the work is relational, utilizing the tools of EMDR, ego state therapy, and neurofeedback. Currently, her work is helping therapists to grow their skills in both the ego state therapy and neurofeedback. Chris works with individuals and couples who have experienced developmental trauma and or complex PTSD, including people in recovery from codependency and substance abuse. Using neurofeedback, EMDR, and psychotherapy, trauma-sensitive yoga, mindfulness practices, mind-body awareness, spirituality, faith, and the 12 steps. What if we start off if, with uh, just um, the question, if you have a client who has not done neurofeedback before, how do you describe that to them? Chris, you want to get started? Yeah. So if I have a client or a potential client calling to inquire about what exactly neurofeedback is, um, I use a lot of analogies with my clients and I talk about, you know, training their brain. You can use the analogy of having a personal, tra personal trainer going to the gym. And um, and with neurofeedback, we use sensors, and the sensors, I, I kind of say, they're, imagine they're like a little stethoscopes. They're not putting anything into your brain, but they're just pick up, picking up the electrical activity that is in you, going on in your brain, just like a stethoscope would pick up your heartbeat. Um, so, because, you know, oftentimes people will have a little bit of anxiety or a lot of anxiety thinking that uh, it, with neurofeedback, we're putting something into their brain or charge into their brain. So I like to squash that myth as soon as possible. So the sensors, when placed on this, picking up the electrical activities and we're going to train up various parts of the brain. Just like if they were going to the gym with a personal trainer, they might be working on trainings, these parts of their body or work on the various parts of their brain. And Chris, can I stop you for a second? Yeah, I can't hear her. Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> it sounds like your microphone is doing something. Can you hear me now? Oh, much better. Now it's much better. It was kind of going in and out. I was just going to say, is, any, is that just oh. me or everybody? I'll hold it because that should be better. I hold it. Do you want to uh, uh, start over? That would be great. Thank you. Sure. Okay. Um, so when I have somebody inquiring about neurofeedback or I'm trying to explain what neurofeedback is to them, 
I often use the analogy of uh, it's training your brain, not so dissimilar as if you had a personal trainer at the gym and you were trying to train various strength in various parts of your body. Um, with neurofeedback, we're putting sensors on the brain and I say the sensors, imagine they're like little stethoscopes in the sense that they're just picking up the electrical activity going on in your brain. They're not putting anything into your brain, which is a common uh, worry that people have is that uh, with the neurofeedback, we're actually putting into their brain. So I want to dispel that myth as soon as possible. We're just picking up the electrical activity and then we are trying to train it. And so when the sensors are placed on the scalp, depending on where we place them, you know, with neurofeedback, we place the sensors on the scalp and depending on where we place them, I tell the clients, there are various different parts of the brain that we're training. And similar to the personal trainer at the gym, they might be, you might spend some time working um, on your abs or your glutes. And so with neurofeedback, we spend time working on trying to strengthen uh, the parts of the brain that have been underactive or quieting the parts of the brain that have been overactive. And so, and I, I use the analogy to, uh, you know, kind of a goal wall for everyone is how do we have a stronger but more flexible brain? I always find it hard because, you know, I say different things to different people uh, depending on their situation. But um, I, I, you know, I think the training one is, is a great one. The body personal trainer um, and analogy that she uses. But um, I, I just let people know that the brain is uh, working at different speeds based on what kind of thing they want to do. So like when they're trying to sleep, you know, the Delta is bigger and predominant and, you know, there's still all the other waves, but we want Delta to be working. Not when you're awake so much. We don't want so much Delta when you're awake. Uh, Cause that'll, you know, it'll make it hard to focus. Theta is a very creative um, brainwave. And I just love, uh, you know, that, brainwave but it's also the one that can get in the way when you're trying to pay attention because it's a, just a step up from delta and then if you go the next gear up you're in alpha which a lot of people try to get into alpha when they want to meditate which is kind of giving some attention inside as well as outside both it's kind of a both and um and then the next step up is uh, SMR if you're in the central strip or beta in general, um, a low to mid beta is actually a really great one for presence and wanting to be really uh, present with what you're trying to learn, which is, you know, it's important when you're learning, but also when, when you're interacting with your clients. So one of the things that's really important to remember is you should train your own brain too, right? As a clinician, uh, because it helps you be present. 
Um, and it's also hard to do therapy with a client who can't be present because they're uh, somewhere else. You know, they're not, they're like in their trauma or they're, um, you know, being hypervigilant. So they can't really be with you in a relationship. And we all know that as clinicians, the relationship is of primary importance, right? Um, and and high beta can a lot of times cause, which is the smallest, teeniest wave, uh, can often cause the you know anxiety. It's associated oftentimes with muscle tension, and so it's one of those that we are oftentimes inhibiting. So when we're doing uh, training, we're like saying, make more of this one and uh, make less of this one, and then we'll give you some feedback on that so that you can kind of know if it's, you know, if it's working and the brain can try it out. And, um, you know, we have some general ideas about how this, uh, you know, what frequencies work for different people and every brain is unique. So the way that we work with that is to really um, have a conversation with this person's brain, right? Like, um, and and when they come back, and and it's so important. I always really uh, stress it's really important that you pay attention to uh, these things. You know how you're sleeping. Is that changed at all, right? And so we, how are you thinking during the day? Are you able to pay attention, or do you? kind of can't quite get up there or your brain is going 100 miles an hour and you can't uh, pay attention because of that. Um, your emotional state. Um, you know, the hard part about the emotional state and a lot of the other things is they're not so biologically in there. Like, so other things can affect it. Like if you had a fight with someone or, you know, if you're worried about something. And so Sometimes you have to really kind of include, well, what is it that's going on in your life right now, as well as, uh, you know, these things. And then what kind of energy do you have? You know, so I'm going to ask them to really keep track of those things. And then another physiological thing that as therapists we don't usually ask about is um, how are your bowel movements, right? Like it's not something we usually talk about, but... Um, it can be, you know, a, a signal about if there's constipation, if there's diarrhea, it can tell you some things about the level of arousal that the client is experiencing. Uh, and you're always going deeper into what is their experience, like when does that happen, so that you have a better idea about what that symptom can mean. And then, of course, their own goals. You want to be have a baseline, very similar to any other therapy. You want to have a baseline of what their behavior or their experience of life has been so that you can have some goals of where to move toward. And uh, then you ask about that. And so those are some things that, you know, that I talk about. Um, Chris, do you want to add some more? You're muted right now, Chris. Very thorough. 
was that, um, sorry, because I logged on and logged off, I missed the question. Was it the same question that we were addressing before? Yeah. Um, I have a follow-up question if you don't feel like you have anything you want to add. I, I don't know that I have anything specifically to add to that. <laughs> she did a beautiful job. I know. Hard to add. I know. <laughs> well, I was going to ask both of you, um, now that Chris, you're back, um, what the obstacles are hurdles? Because I always find it's nice to hear the good stuff and how it works and, and all that. But where do you find the obstacles either in people getting started or, you know, kind of along, along this early process that you're talking about? Um, I think, you know, some of the obstacles that I face with my clients is, um, one, you know, the cost. Fortunately, we live in a state where some insurances do cover neurofeedback, which is great, but not all. And so, um, for the people that their insurance doesn't cover it, um, it's, you know, a financial barrier. Yep. And then, you know, ideally with neurofeedback, if somebody can come in, you know, a minimum of twice a week, that's great. But logistically, that's very difficult for the majority of my clients. Uh, people have work schedules. Um, I have a work schedule. <laughs> you know, oftentimes people are wanting hours or you know they're wanting after work hours and so logistically there's just those challenges to creating what i would say is an optimal uh setup for success uh, with that i still do see people once a week because i have seen a benefit for clients coming in once mm -hmm. a week um and logistically they you know, that it's just not feasible for them to come more often. I think, you know, in areas where, um, or at times when insurance doesn't cover it, you know, the financial piece is a huge barrier for a lot of people. And I try to be really mindful about that um, and try to address, you know, how can we help them to get the service that they need at the mm -hmm. time when they need it. Yeah. I agree. I think that's probably the biggest barriers. And I don't want to say finances. I want to say insurance. Insurance is the biggest obstacle. Their unwillingness um, for a lot of insurances to understand the importance of this and the research support behind it. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's really insurance that's blocking people. The thing that I'm really grateful about is in Minnesota, um, the Medicaid pays for it. That's awesome. A huge deal right yeah. so that that brings the equity to our state mm -hmm. so I'm very appreciative of that that we had some leadership at the time that made some policies because they looked at the at the uh data the research is great yeah it's yeah. really I, bad I you were i i have um i i don't have as many obstacles because when they come to me they know that that's how i work mm -hmm. i mean I just, I don't do, do work without it. Um, it was more during the transition time when I, you know, was just learning it and I already had like long-term clients and most of them were kind of like interested in it because I was so excited about it and they wanted to help me, you know, <laughs> clients want to help you. And, 
And um, that was that was delightful, right? There were a couple clients who didn't want to do it for their own reasons. And, you know, you have to respect that, right? Uh, everybody is in a place where they are. And um, so that, you know, then that that's that. Um, but eventually my practice transitioned into only neurofeedback. I mean, I'm not saying only. I'm saying neurofeedback was a part of the picture. Right. You know, you know it, it can be used in, in conjunction with many uh, kinds of things. I use EMDR, sensory motor therapy, um, ego state work. And I have found, you know, that combination with neurofeedback is very helpful. Um, you know, and I think of neurofeedback as um, the way to help people become more present in the experience, in the relationship. So these other things will work, you know, um, better uh, because, you know, it can be, you know, how do you, how do you get some of our most difficult, uh, you know, the clients who had the most difficult history to be in relationship? You know, that's a big deal. Uh, and how do you uh, help them be present? So, um, you know, neurofeedback has been helpful in that way. And particularly, you know, if you start working in processing some of uh, the past trauma, they have to be present to do that. You know, EMDR always says you have to have a foot in the present to to be able to process it. Otherwise, you're shutting down or you're getting overwhelmed. And neither of those are, you know, and both of the one of them can be more traumatic, right? And the other one is not helpful because you can't access the emotional content of that memory. Um, so... That's how I, I kind of integrate them and uh, it was most helpful to me. But in terms of obstacles, once, you know, I think the excitement and the possibility, a lot of people are looking for something. They're like, someone help me. I cannot do, you know, I, I've been. I've done talk therapy for 20 years. Nothing's helped. Yeah, I yeah, want to try yeah. something different. And I think that that's the, the, the draw for me as a therapist, you know, I'm always looking for something that can be more helpful to my clients. And so when I heard about, um, you know, Bessel van der Kolk using it and, and finding it helpful, I'm like, okay, tell me more. So I read Seabird Fisher's book, which is awesome. And, you know, that's my shell of working with people who've had developmental trauma, which, you know, what we know as we study the brain is that kind of, uh, you know, either neglect or and or uh, trauma causes, you know, the brain is trying to be a great brain for the situation. And so it's uh, just allowing those uh, connections that the client needs at the time. So the little kid who's always in you know, is needing to be hypervigilant so they don't get harmed or is needing to uh, disconnect in order to feel, you know, to survive any kind of safety issues. Or if not, you know, if if the mother is not responding or father is not responding, the caregiver is not responding, 
then you know you tend to shut down because you can't maintain that level of arousal for too long. It's just too difficult. So you know if you see those uh, that uh, YouTube that does you know the mother and daughter connection, you know, and they're playing and they're all, you know, and then she goes blank and you can see the child is just getting upset. Experiment. Yep. Yeah. And then they, then she stops because she, she's not able to reach her mother with all the crying. And that's kind of, I think, an experience of disconnection, right? And so we learn these things and whatever our brain needs to do to help us regulate when we're children, those kinds of networks get strengthened. And some of the ones that we aren't using get um, pruned, right? We learn that that happens in the brain, that some of the other connections get pruned. And so uh, then now we have an adult who has less resources because that brain was created for that initial experience or the, that growing up experience. And now this brain doesn't have the same neural networks that maybe someone who hadn't experienced those things. I thought it was fascinating. I know both of you were there for the presentation when I think it was Ruth who was talking about how neglect that the still-faced experiment is neglect, um, if prolonged, but not just five minutes, um, how the newer research is indicating it might be in a left amygdala problem um, versus abuse tending to be a right amygdala. And I think for, for those who are listening who are experienced providers, it gives us reason to work on the left side, um, some of the left side treatment uh, trauma protocols that you might not have thought of because we might have to get to the left amygdala the piece of that is that we don't think the left and right amygdala are uh, homologous sites. So if you work on one, you don't address the other. Um, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. It just really changed the way I think about neurobiology for my neglected, you know, not a, not that kind of a physical sexual abuse, but neglect. Last up. So I'm, yeah, I'm with you, Mary. It really is, makes a difference. It's so exciting. It's so exciting that we're at a time that we're exploring this, right? And I just will say, you know, um, it's one of the most exciting things that I ever did was to start to learn about the brain and the neurofeedback. But, you know, artist makes too, I'm sure. Yeah. And, and I think the important piece is to realize that, you know, we only know this much right we only it, there's just so much more to know and we'll never know it all because we're limited by our brain even though there's uh you know the brain is doing all kinds of amazing things uh, but we we know enough right we know enough to help the brain help itself which is exactly which is great yeah. I think they're coming back to your question about barriers, Leanne. Um, one of the things that I thought about just as Mary was talking right now is, you know, your question, I think may have been about barriers with our clients, but there's also the issue about barriers to clinicians becoming neurofeedback providers. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, for me, uh, becoming a neurofeedback provider 
has been um, exciting because it is such a growing field, but also the biggest learning curve of, I would say, my professional career. I'm really challenging myself um, to get a better understanding of the neurophysiology, uh, you know, trying to grasp an understanding of all these brain waves and what's going on. And I mean, and technology, a technology, yes, technology, as I'm, you know, not a digital native, <laughs> I'm a digital immigrant, as they say. And so learning this, learn that term. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I guess that's when, how you know I'm a digital native because I didn't know what that was. Right. And so, you know, and that, that hurdle will, I think, definitely decrease as younger people coming into the field and they're going to have more of a digital, uh, they're going to be digital natives and these, and working with computers in this kind of complex of a way uh, will be more comfortable for them. But, you know, the endeavor to decide to do it, I be, I learned about neurofeedback in 2012, and it wasn't until 2015 when I did the training because, you know, there were the challenges. Of, first of all, there's a lot of different trainings. How do you decide which training is the best for you? Um, and I think that's different for different people, depending on what your client base is and what your practice is about. And then... Um, you know, actually going and doing the training, the cost of doing that. And um, I know when I was thinking of doing this, I said to my partner, I said, I'm I'm really interested in neurofeedback and I want to get trained to do this. And then there's going to be an investment in not just the training, but buying equipment and then ongoing mentoring. And so this is not a short-term thing. And I was at the place of my professional career, my practice, that I already had a full practice. So it wasn't like I was um, hoping to learn something new to like fill in the gaps in my practice. I already had a full practice. So there was a part of me that was questioning as a business person, like, is this a good business decision for me? But also just who I am, I am somebody that always wants to be learning and doing new things. And so I thought I'm going to take the plunge. And I mean, it was a plunge. And like I mentioned, it has been the biggest learning curve of my career, but I would say also the most gratifying. And Agreed. I would say that it took me less than two years to feel like I made my money back from my initial investment of my equipment and my training and and probably for the outcomes your clients got and oh well and that that is the biggest thing is the outcomes that my clients got because the reason that I was interested in it in the first place was you know working with people with developmental trauma um can be challenging and there were some clients that I felt like am I really helping these people but yet they came to me after seeing many other therapists. So it wasn't like I was their first therapist along the way. They were sent to me because other people didn't feel like they could help them. And um, and I also had the sense of like, I feel like I'm going to be working with this person for, you know, 10, 20 years. And 
that's not necessarily what I got into therapy is to work with somebody for that long, not saying that there might not be times when a client needs that, but there has to be something to help them quicker. And I'm not saying it's quick with neurofeedback, but I'm saying it does, it is quicker. And, you know, what I really saw, and as Mary mentioned this earlier, that neurofeedback is probably the biggest uh, tool to help my clients learn how to self-regulate. You know, and once they were able to be more regulated, to be more emotionally regulated, then they had a greater capacity to address the, to address the trauma material. Everything follows from regulation. Right. It's that foundation. We can only provide support. Most of the other work is all right. that. You spend every session just regulating. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it was those clients that had such great difficulty in the in their ability to regulate themselves that, you know, were going from therapist to therapist or came to me after seeing many other therapists. And I felt like I have to learn something new to help them so that they can learn how to self-regulate. And for me, that's the biggest piece of what neurofeedback has done for me and my clients is just helping to develop that foundation of self-regulation that they didn't get in infancy, toddlerhood, early childhood. And then once they have that, um, you know, there's so much more that they're able to do. And the lack of regulation for an adult creates a lot of negative consequences in their life. So not only did they have their childhood trauma to work through, but then their inability to regulate was causing a lot of negative consequences in their present day life, which then only exacerbated everything else. And just the ability of being able to self-regulate and creating more positive outcomes in their present day life gave them, you know, the, I think the strength and uh, the agency to really start to address all of those underlying childhood traumas. I 100% agree. It really, uh, my, my joke, but it's serious is I'm not interested in doing therapy with my hands tied behind my back and doing therapy without narrow feedback feels that way. Um, the other, the other piece that I always say is that um, this funny thing happened when I added neurofeedback. I had to get more clients because my clients would do better and then they go on and leave and yeah. live their lives. I'm working myself out of a job, which is right. Um, not a, not the world's best business strategy, but therapists are not known for that piece. But right. it's, the, it, it's the ethical right thing to do is to actually work to put ourselves out of business that they don't exactly. need us anymore rather than needing us all the time. And, so I have to get more clients now, which is not a problem uh, because they actually can go off and live their lives. Yeah. Yeah. I have no difficulty getting new clients. You know, um, I've, oh, you know, I've had a wait list um, and sometimes, you know, that wait list has gotten way too long. You know, one of the things I have to figure out is how to manage that better. But 
you know, people do get better quicker. Doesn't mean it happens, you know, in a few months, but it does take a lot less time than previously. I wonder if y'all could talk a little bit about why, um, you know, some of this, uh, you know, the, the neurosciences isn't quite there yet in terms of the research, but I wonder if you could help, um, help folks to understand why is it that neurofeedback, the sort of self-regulation process, the seeing your, your brain, seeing its own reflection in the mirror of the EEG, why does that help? The therapeutic process. Why does that help the the person to to develop the relationship? You know, the the therapeutic alliance and whatnot. What do you have a sense of of what what the answer to that question is? Because I can imagine, at least for me, it's definitely the case. Like, okay, so I'm I. It sounds legit, um, but what what actually is going on there? So. Do you have a, a, a way of talking about that? When does that question come up even with clients? Like, why is this, why is this changing? Why is the, the neurofeedback changing my brain and my sense of self-regulation? Well, that's one. Go ahead, Mary. I think one of the things that, you know, I have a slide that kind of uh, demonstrates that, that maybe you can put up, um, but it what it shows is uh people who've had trauma you know how their brain is looking inside an fmri um and it's it what it shows is the you know the just a, a you know normal uh compared to ptsd uh there's like much more activation like uh in terms of a sense of self in terms of connecting to uh, uh, the frontal lobe, which is that part that kind of anticipates the future. You know, a lot of times you have a foreshortened future uh, with with a lot of, you know, depression. And uh, with people who've had trauma, they, you know, they can only think about the present moment. The, the occipital lobe is more lit up in a normal, meaning they're taking in new information, right, rather than just revolving, uh, you know, going to the hippocampus and remembering or wherever they're stored, you know, the, remembering the, the, uh, how it's happened before. Right. So, um, this, this difference of, you know, uh, just depending on what you initially learn, but not being able to take in new information makes people just kind of keep doing the same thing because that's what they know right and it, and fear we know kind of contracts us right and so it doesn't allow us to experience new things and integrate that so that we can say well this is dangerous but this is not and um so i think that you know this this slide kind of demonstrates because the the you know the the areas of the brain that are uh, activated in a PTSD client are so small. Oh, you know, like they, mm -hmm. you're not using your whole brain right. to, to function. I frequently will show that slide. Um, well, almost everybody, I will show pictures of those slides 
the difference of the brain with PTSD versus the brain without PTSD. And I show them how in the brain with PTSD, how you know the only part of the brain that's really activated is here in the back. And, you know, that's getting really stuck in the past. And there's that rigidity there where when somebody has a more robust default mode network, meaning, you know, there's some activity back here and then there's activity in the insula, which is, you know, kind of the salient, which, which is kind of being in the present moment and then activity here in the front and the prefrontal cortex, being able to think about the future and having a more robust default mode network means that you can move um, between those spots and that helps with the regulation. When you're stuck in the past, that's when people are more likely to get reactive to you know things that happen in the present moment. And if they're stuck in the past in their brain, then they're reacting to the event in the present moment as if they were in the past, rather than being in the present moment and recognizing, okay, this thing in front of me is not dangerous. Um, I may not like it, but it's not dangerous. Or, you know, so that ability to have a more, to develop a more robust default mode network is what I say to my clients. This is one of our overall goals. Like this is a bigger goal for <laughs> the clients with the developmental traumas. You know, when we're done with neurofeedback, we're hoping that your brain is going to function a little bit more like the control group, the non-PTSD group, than the image of the people with PTSD. I think the piece that connects what both of you are saying to neurofeedback, for those who don't know neurofeedback, is, is neuroplasticity. And I know mm -hmm. Mary's got a beautiful slide you might be able to put up about that, but that's the brain's ability to be plastic, meaning to change and to grow no matter your age. Um, plasticity doesn't stop just because you're 75. Um, it, it goes until you're gone. Um, and neurofeedback goes for that piece. Neurofeedback wants to access the brain's plasticity simply by giving it feedback. And what we're capitalizing on um, with all the beautiful neuroscience you've both talked about is the brain's desire um, to, to change for its own optimal functioning. We capitalize on the brain being a very good learner. The brain is incredibly good at learning um, and wanting things to be better for itself. It doesn't naturally want things to be better for the world, but that doesn't matter in this scenario. It wants optimal functioning for itself mm -hmm. and will always learn if it thinks it's in its own best interest. So we capitalize on knowing all this about PTSD in the brain that if we give the brain feedback that it's not functioning optimally, it's going to go, oh, shoot, I'm going to try to function better. And then it tries it. And when it feels better, it repeats it mm -hmm. because our brain loves, that's why we love sugar. It feels good. So we keep doing it. Well, neurofeedback, getting the beeps and getting the positive feedback from your clinician feels good. So when mm -hmm. you and the brain, you practice and you keep doing it and you keep doing it. And then those changes that need to be made that you guys are talking about, the brain can put it all together. Because it's nice that we know those things, but then we have to ask the brain to look at it and go, hey, you got to do something different. And we're the reason we're going towards regulation rather than just learning disabilities or something else, which we can work on, is that it's the foundation and it's the best thing we can affect because the brain will move towards flexibility 
and stability much faster than it moves towards little specific changes. Mm-hmm. Global changes are easier to get out of the brain because the brain chooses what it to do with the feedback we give it. Uh, we are not forcing the brain to do anything. It chooses its, its brood. And it does that much faster than it will do anything else. Mary, you look like you wanted to add to that. Well, I mean, it has to go. I had to go. All right. I Sorry, guys. So adaptive information processing is kind of one of the things that's really important in in the EMDR uh, field. And I think that that's that's speaking to that exactly, right? That that, um, the brain wants to do things efficiently. It's always trying to create, I mean, what is, what would work? Um, but it, it is, it, it, it learn, it learns really, really fast when you're young. And so, um, then after you do it a lot, then it gets strengthened, you know? And so, um, that, you know, that needs to be, you know, changed. And so we do know that the synapses are like there's new synapses growing every time you learn something new. Like right now, as you're listening, if you learned anything new, uh, you have new synapses uh, making connections. Um, and there's some that are taken out when you don't use them or you're not uh, connecting there. So the brain is always changing. And that's so exciting, right? Like that. that's why we all wanted to be therapists. We want to help people feel better about their lives, function better in their lives. And we hope for change and, uh, not just for the sake of change for, but more, um, to have more productive lives. So, yep. Yay. Yay. Yeah, I never know where these conversations are going to go when we start off, and they always end up somewhere really awesome. So thank you, Mary, and I know um, Chris had to jump off, but thank you for having such an ex- interesting conversation with us today. I appreciate you inviting us. Thank you.